All right. So as this comes out, you have been to a Jason Isbell concert. Did you have a good time? It was good luck. I, I hope I did. <laughs> I think I might have. What, what is it about Jason Isbell that gets you in your car and driving down to, to Omaha to see him? You wouldn't do that for everybody. Not for everybody, no. Um, he has taken a stance on the landscape as sort of, um, I, guess you, I guess you could say that he's been labeled as woke. Mm. Okay, so let's just put it, put it like that. Um, but he- uh, He's in, the Yannick of country music. <laughs> of alt country. <laughs> but he also is sort of blowing up the myth that country music fashioned about the way the good old days used to be. Mm. You know, and he is saying, you know, all this stuff that happened was not all that cool in the moment. And you mm -hmm. can sing about it and romanticize it, but it was not that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his, his wife, Amanda Shires, is uh, also an incredible musician. And there's a new documentary out on HBO where you can hear about them putting together this latest album, the troubles that they went through. They almost divorced. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm looking forward to the Jason Isbell show. Well, congrats to you for having gone yesterday again as, as this comes <laughs> out. And huge thanks to our partners over at Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on them at salastina.org and more on their upcoming programming in a bit. Uh, but in the intro this week, Scott, you know, since you know, through the again through the power of podcast magic, you're mm -hmm. coming back from a, a Jason Isbell concert. I wonder if uh, we could spend a couple minutes talking about a live performance that really sticks out in our memory. Live mm -hmm. performance that really had an impact. Does anything come to uh, instant mind for you? Just jump to the front for you. It does. 1987 Civic Auditorium, Omaha, Nebraska. Sting, the Nothing Like the Sun tour. Yeah, he had uh, a, a whole band of jazz musicians behind him. Omar Hakim, Kenny Kirkland, Branford Marsalis, uh, a couple lady, uh, a couple ladies backing him up that I forget their names. But it was a, a, it was a definite spectacle. Amazing music. The uh, the the lights and costumes were were flashy. Um, just an incredible night. And thinking about it, I can get goosebumps. Mm. Any particular tune from the performance that you? Well, like to revisit or think about in 1987 everybody was smoking and had a lighter on them so <laughs> when the song fragile came on everybody held up the lighter and to look out over that huge auditorium with that music playing and to see just this sea of twinkling actual flames mm. that was a moment Performances live in Viña del Mar featuring Orquesta Sinfonica de Chile. Did cool. you did, did you see him with a full orchestra? Not at that point, no. But 
So, so having the memories that you have about that specific song live, what does the orchestra backing that we uh, heard there add to it? Or well, does it add anything? It does. See, I've seen Sting perform about half a dozen times, and each concert is different because he's giving you a different iteration every mm -hmm. time. And so to hear, I, I'm not surprised to hear a string section backing him up, but when I heard it, I, the thought that entered my mind was, oh, no, this is nice. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it was good. It was a good way to prop that song up. It almost feels, and I don't know, th this is me. Sometimes I'm weird about live performances. Does for you, like those really tender songs or those songs that really pull the heartstrings, is a loud, crowded stadium not the space for it? Or even in a space like that, can you, you know, have those feelings that you have with the music when you're just listening to it at home? You know how you hurt when, when the main melody of the, nylon string guitar came in and all the crowd went nuts mm -hmm. that happened and then it was silent they I mean, sat there and listened people around <laughs> people sitting around me were not moving you know he he had people in the palm of his hand at that moment wow wow that's beautiful what about you uh when i think about a live performance that just sticks out uh, and i almost did not want to include this because i think there's a lot of attention on Joel Thompson's uh, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, mm, where attention goodness. could be on many of his other pieces. He's an incredible composer with a very dynamic and diverse catalog. But I'm sorry, I will never forget the Sphinx Conference in 2017. I've told the story many times. I played the concert. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't on that piece. So I was never at any of the rehearsals for the piece or anything like that. So at the actual performance, when the first uh, half is done, you know, I run up to the balcony and, you know, don't have a program, don't know what's going to happen and just hear an orchestra used in that way to tell that message. That's the only time in my life where I have just boo-hooed yeah. looking at an orchestra of all things, you know, of uh, it, it changed everything about me. It mm -hmm. changed everything about my career. I had been in radio at that point for maybe three months, you know, but, mm -hmm. but, but after you know, hearing that performance, I just knew that I had a responsibility. Now I have a platform. I have, uh, you know, many, many, many ears. You know, tens of thousands down in in Knoxville, and there, there was something I needed to do about that. If Joel Thompson could do that with his writing pen, and for that to happen with an orchestra, I felt like I had a responsibility. So you know, that just that live performance. You know, of all the pop artists, hip hop artists, everyone. You know, I've seen that performance definitely sticks out, especially that very last movement. I know we all have various movements that impact us in different ways, but those final words of Eric Garner, I can't breathe as, you know, portrayed by Joel Thompson in the piece, ghostly, you know, mm, hauntingly mm. beautiful.
Have you had the opportunity to air that twice at, now. at your job? Mm-hmm. What's what? Are, what are the feels? What are the breaks? How how do you deliver that to your audience? Very little. I say that this is based on an idea that Hendel had the um, seven last words of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's based on the last things said by black men who died at the hands of police violence. Here are their names. And then I go into it and, mm. and that's it. Yeah. I let everybody else absorb it as they will. And I think that uh, as, as moving as that moment is and with that heartbeat yeah. that's going on in the background, um, Joel has a knack of really bringing some beauty to it. The uh, mom, I'm going to college. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That is swoon worthy, the, the piece that he the, to go along with that. And um, more abrasive movements, like you shot me, that sure. will, will jar you. Yeah. you know, it's, it, and you say that he's written other things, but this is the piece that we need right now. I mean, uh, obviously, in time, we'll know everything in Joel's catalog. This is the piece of the moment. Yeah. I, will, I'll, I won't push back on that, but I'll say that if I have to put two things up, we definitely need that piece. I also just deep down in my heart appreciate uh, his uh, "A Snowy Day." You know, after the oh, the uh, right. Ezra Jack Keats book, you know yeah. that opera with the, it was, the the red snowsuit. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And mm-hmm. See, now I'm about to get choked up. You know, because <laughs> Don't do that. Sit, sitting here looking at the uh, opera, you know, we streamed it. Me and Dell streamed it. They did it down, I believe, in Houston. Mm. Um, of course, very snowy here in Minnesota that that December or January, and then you just see the because I remember that book. I, I remember it as a kid. I had it. Yeah, and then. You know, just to see it come to life in that way and then pair on top of all of that, you know, the fact that I know some of these singers on stage and they're bringing this whimsical, fun thing to life. Nobody is dying. There's no trauma. We're mm. just enjoying ourselves. You know, that that's again, that's why I say that there's a lot of attention put on that piece of his, which mm-hmm. it should be. I just always like to reiterate that he has a lot more in his catalog and black trauma isn't something that you have to engage if you want to engage his music. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about Sting, we're talking about Joel Thompson's work. Both of those performances that we just listened to are orchestral performances full and through. There is uh, singing with both of them. There are soloists with both of them. But at the end of the day, they're both orchestral performances. Both of those come with an emotional response, you know, whether it's the nostalgia for you and being in that moment and what the piece, you know, did for me and my life and and my work. They also share that. Both of these are examples of classical music. And here on this podcast, that's what we affirm. The traditional, the so-called traditional, the so-called non-traditional, all put in the same box towards something greater for this art form and for the experience of live music, especially live orchestral music. Let's jump in. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this... 
Ventriloquy. Thanks so much for joining us once again. To returning listeners, thank you so much for joining us and supporting week after week. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the, the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the concept of classical music and expands it well beyond what has been traditionally affixed to that phrase, classical music, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information, to check out past opuses, and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Salestina presenting on May 6th. We're already here at May. Wow. It's presenting on May 6th at 11 a.m. Happy hour number 113 with Luthier Mario Morales. Uh, it says here, who is the Stradivarius of our time? Mario Morales is one answer. His instruments are coveted by string players worldwide. You've heard them on all the world's major stages, and his waiting list is miles long. If you want to engage this very famous luthier, you can do that on May 6th at 11 a.m. That's happening at the Pasadena Conservatory of Music. More information uh, and uh, all the details at salestina.org. Huge thanks to all of our friends over there. Uh, we have Stanford Thompson coming to the third movement. Really excited to speak with him about Equity Arc and the direction that American orchestras need to go in, being more engaged with the conversations of today, uh, just as, you know, that Joel thompson piece is that mm -hmm. needs to be more of a regular occurrence in our orchestras we have music by mobley and masego in the second movement a couple of m's to celebrate this week mm -hmm. uh i'm gonna talk a little bit about dixie in the f finale oh know, boy so you can guess what's coming with with that <laughs> i'm getting the jiffy pop <laughs> but for now we're gonna go ahead and jump into movement one all right i hate to do it but uh we have to Get started this week by offering a uh, rest in peace to Blair Tyndall, uh, uh, an acclaimed author and oboist, a member of the Triloquy family. She went on to her next adventure at the age of 63 just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, if you want to go back and listen to that interview and that show, it's Opus 44, all the way back in season one. Wow. When we were just we little podcasters. When 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 I had less hair and you had more. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> go on. <laughs> that was good. That was well placed. Yes. Okay. So uh, back to the serious bits. Um, she really held, uh, at the same time, she held a mirror up and a curtain back in the classical world. Um, folks who watch um, cable TV would probably recognize Mozart in the Jungle, mm -hmm. which was based on her book. And it details all of the things that she experienced as an oboist trying to make it in uh, in the classical music world. Yeah, the thing about Mozart. So I read the book. What what year was that? I read it before I was playing with Detroit. So it must have been I don't know 2013 or so. Like mm. many years ago, I, I read the book. And for folks who don't know, you know, I think really what she did was just bring a sort of realness, dare I say trillness, to the conversation of classical music that wasn't so much there in the past, you know, right. not, not only about musicians, but about specific people and spe specific uh, musicians. Mm -hmm. But before I get into that, let me just read a little bit uh, from the, the New York Times uh, notification. It says, Blair Tyndall, a freelance oboist and journalist who drew on both of those abilities to write Mozart in the jungle, sex, drugs, and classical music, an eyebrow-raising 2005 memoir that became an award-winning television series, died on April 12th in Los Angeles. She was 63. Her fiance, the photographer, Chris 
Saddleberger said the cause was cardiovascular disease. So we're really going to miss her and honor her. I wanted to say a few things that I remember from Mozart in the Jungle, some some of which sort of surprised me and some of them didn't because I was in the midst right. of, of, of that world. The first thing that comes to mind, so, you know, again, she tells many stories in the book that are personal stories of hers. Sometimes people are implicated, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's really So you can, you can kind of figure it's, out. It's tea. The, uh-huh, the, the okay. whole book is tea. Um, so at one point, and if I'm getting exact details wrong, please forgive me because it's been over 10 years since I read this book, but I do remember at one point in the book, she's talking about taking an orchestral audition, you know, so we've talked about how that works on Triloquy, you know, you got a curtain and and all of that stuff. Uh, so Blair talks about having a really great first round audition and getting to the final excerpt. And they keep asking her to play it again, play it again, you know, from behind the curtain. You have to listen carefully what they're saying. So if they say something like, uh, can you play that again and uh, pay special attention to the dynamics? That means you better you exaggerate mm. the dynamics or you need, you know, but that's them giving you a chance. In the book, she says what she hears from behind the curtain is uh, play that again and, and be sure to pay special attention to the notes so she's oh. <laughs> so she's going and doing it again she doesn't understand anyway she's cut from the first round of the audition and uh someone who she knows i believe is it may have even been someone she was dating at the time who also plays oboe he advanced beyond that uh, initial round, even though they had been practicing and preparing together. What she realized later, you know, that she puts in the book is that she had taught, she learned a wrong note in in the piece. She wasn't reading an accidental or right. something. And the person that she was training with, you know, her so-called boyfriend never said anything about the wrong note. Right. So it's that sort of tea that's in the book and just highlights how cutthroat that industry, this industry can be. I remember she she has another part of the book where basically uh, she talks about how if someone doesn't like you or thinks your perfume smells or you know y'all's personalities just clash, that can easily be translated into a lack of rhythm or intonation issues. So really, what you know among the many things that she drove at in the entire book was not only the human nature of classical music, but the pernicious human nature right. of classical music. I think what you have here is a case of most of the people in the world knowing classical music as stuffy. Mm-hmm. You got to be smart. You know, you got to have money, whatever you you have to have yeah. in order to play it, listen to it, enjoy it, whatever. And she basically blew all of that up. So if you were to find out some lurid details about something that you thought was nice and squeaky clean, Mm -hmm. you would be in disbelief as well. Oh, sure. So she starts off here saying by, she got most of her gigs in bed. Yep. (laughs) Okay. So she details in the book. (laughs) Right. And she was also using this to try to point out the inequities Mm -hmm. that were happening. And so some of the reviews like one of them that came out said, yeah, you know, she just sounds like she has sour grapes. That it's, mm-hmm. it's classical music's fault that things ended up the way that they did. And my response is, yeah, it is <laughs> classical music's fault that she ended up the way. Um, she said, I did notice when I became involved in a relationship with someone in the business that my work picked up. She said, she told the Daily Telegraph in Britain, 2005, you need all the friends you can get. The music world is very incestuous. And I have said this about the theater world too. You know, you're mm-hmm. just sort of, you just sort of get in bed with whoever you're working with at the time, I guess. 
you know, those were the days. <laughs> I've, I'm almost hesitating, but I, I feel like based on what you just said, you know, when she started dating certain people, her work picked up. That's something that if I really want to spill some tea, something that I've experienced firsthand and seen. Ooh, are we going to get a read? <laughs> just to make the point and not to gaslight everything that Blair Tyndall talked about over the course of this book. I played in an orchestra once upon a time. And there was an opening in a certain section. I'm not even going to say the instrument. And someone won it. Someone from outside of the orchestra. It's all good. Okay. When it comes time for another opening in that or in that section to happen, guess who got the trial? Guess who made it uh, to the uh, the finals of that audition and even had an opportunity to test run the job. But the person who just won the job's spouse. Mm. I mean, that just happens right in front of our faces. I was also, again, I'm going to, you know, not say names or anything to protect the guilty, but there was another audition panel that I was involved in at, at, in some way. And there were two finalists. One was a man, one was a woman. Of course, it's always neck to neck when you get to those fine. And all sure. the, the top 10 can play the job, really, by, by the time you get to it. The man got the job. And what was sort of said in the in the break room afterwards was, oh, I could never hire a, a, a woman that beautiful and expect to have peace at home. Yeah. You know, like, so all of that stuff is real. I, if I have seen it, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. Blair Tyndall saw a lot of it and just decided to write it down and put it in a book. She said people seem to have uh, a hard time coming to grips with the fact that classical musicians have sex. Mm. Uh, where where do you <laughs> yeah. think the little musicians and with come other. from? Right. <laughs> but when I was teaching as an adjunct and, and the students would try to give me a hard time about being, you know, a 30-something working in classical music, and I'd say, you guys don't know. Mm -hmm. These classical- Franz Liszt couldn't keep his clothes on. These uh, Paganini? <laughs> Are you, yeah, these these- these musicians were groupie shagging, hotel room destroying, mm -hmm. hard drinking, hard living, bon vivants. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> they, yes. they love to live life. Um, she brings up a great point about trying to take advantage of every single uh, bit of leverage or opportunity to get a job. If you take all the major orchestras in America together, there are jobs for 100 full-time oboists. That's across the country. Right. There are 300 union oboists in New York City right exactly. now. She exactly. Says. So talk about that sort of uh, that sort of competition, that sort of um, pressure, yeah. even that's going to result from taking an audition. Did you sweat out auditions? I'm trying to think. I won the very first audition I took way back when, but. You know, of course, we all lose way more than than, sure. than we yep. win. You know, between my winning my first one and my getting my uh, job in Knoxville, I'd probably say there were there were, let's say, ten auditions, and at least half of them I advanced past the first round. But you know, there were at least three or four of them where you spend all of these months practicing, you get on an airplane, you rent mm. a car, you go to the audition, you sit on stage for 45 seconds and hear, thank you. And then that's just it. And then you, you, know? got, you got the rest of the day to <laughs> right. kill. And the, and the rest of the week to cry, you know, or whatever. Mm. But, <laughs> but anyway, the, the last thing I do want to say that I want to acknowledge and say out loud, like all of us, Blair was imperfect. I'm sure that people are going to go, 
digging up some of the social media stuff, you know, and sure. I'm, I'm not going to name anything, not to, you know, start a witch hunt or anything. But at the end of the day, she really did usher in a culture into the conversation that largely was not there. Mm-hmm. She, as you said, she put the mirror up, she uh, pulled the curtain back and found a way where there was seemingly no way. I don't know many other classically trained musicians who ended up writing a book that got turned into a TV show and, you know, right. she's living her best life doing X, Y, and Z. So rest in peace and rest in power to Blair Tyndall. If you want to go back and check out, maybe I will have to go check out Opus 44 to see what we were talking about back then. I'm sure the sound quality was shit. The young, the young Turks. <laughs> you know, Triloquy has grown a lot, but you know, we, um, we, we will forever miss uh, Blair Tyndall and forever appreciate what she did. Mozart in the Jungle is sitting on um, one of my bookshelves right now. Mm. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's uh, been with me for a while. Well, we don't play much Mozart on this show, it's but true. we're, we're going to do it today just to honor Blair Tyndall as much of a fan as she was of uh, Mozart's music. We're going to hear a little bit of the uh, middle movement, the adagio movement from the oboe quartet by Mozart, his Kerschel 370, if you're keeping score. Rest in power again to Blair Tyndall. You know, I forgot to mention that Blair also accused one of her teachers in the book of some inappropriate behavior. We think about the Me Too movement. If that book had been written 15 years later, you know, during during mm-hmm. that time. There'd be some people the, up out of here. The whole conversation would be different, which I think, again, proves the point that she really did bring something that hadn't been brought before, right. at least not in that way, because heads did not roll in the way that they could have, mm-hmm. you know, and she wrote a whole book and we know who everybody was talking about. But because, you know, she's a woman who, you know, probably just needs to practice. She X, Y and Z. You know, there was a lot of doubt and it just, you know, the the misogyny jumps out. It does. As, as soon as anybody, you know, wants to stand in their truth. All right. Anyway, um, we're going to round out this first movement with uh Something on the lighter side. I'm just I'm gonna go ahead and, and pass a sharp this way. I'm reading from Afrotech.com. The headline is Quest Love debuts young adult novel dedicated to his nine-year-old self. Quote, I want black nerds to see themselves. First things first, he's so much more than a drummer. Mm-hmm. And I know <laughs> that there's that stereotype out there about drummers, you know, and and whatever. But if anybody proves that stereotype wrong, it's him. You know, he he's done stuff that most classical musicians, much less anyone else, can't manage to do. You know, just really being an entrepreneur, being interdisciplinary. And when I think about his dedication to just blackness and mm-hmm. celebrating black people, it's it's something to to really applaud. I'm thinking about Summer of Soul. Um, you you remember this uh, <laughs> the show Drunk History? Sure. Um, he his Drunk History was about. Uh, the the origins of hip hop, you know. So they they did that episode. <laughs> it was fun. Um, I, I probably talked about it on Triloquy before uh, when he appeared on a children's show called Yo Gabba Gabba. Sure, you know, like just 
I don't know. Shout out to Quest Love. He's out here doing it. Yeah, he um, he showed up in a Parks and Rec episode as. Uh, oh, I don't Don- remember that. Yeah, he showed up as Donna's brother at her wedding. Oh, Le- really? Lavandrius. <laughs> oh, that was Lavandrius. Yeah, and he had a <laughs> he brought in a microwave and smashed it on the ground, and he says, "Now neither of us will get any popcorn." <laughs> I loved it. I do not remember that. <laughs> but and he also got together with Ludwig Drums, and he designed a, sort of a cocktail drum kit that you could get in a cab. You know, for huh. so for six hundred and fifty bucks, you can get an out of the box, brand new drum kit that is portable, and for three hundred and fifty, you can get the kids' version. And I was looking at the three fifty one, thinking, "Hey, you know, th- this is right at my speed here," and all of it collapses together, really small footprint. So if you're gigging around and moving yeah. around, you yeah. you can do that. Wow, that that's really incredible. So let me uh, read a little bit here. It says Quest Love's latest project is dedicated to all the children who love reading but may not always see themselves properly reflected. According to Hip Hop DX, following its release on April 18th, the legendary musician's young adult novel, The Rhythm of Time, has already made an appearance in the top five of Amazon's children's action and adventure books bestseller list. The Roots member described himself as the quote alt black kid growing up and said that he often never fit in when it came to fashion, stylings, or lingo of the day. He recently opened up about his reasons for writing the book. I want black nerds to see themselves as well. So when we talk about Questlove seeing himself as the alt black kid and wanting kids to see themselves, I couldn't help but to think of the idea what would have been beneficial to us and what ways would we have loved to see ourselves when we were a eight, mm. nine, 10, 11 year old? What, what do mm. you, what do you think about that? Eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. Well, I, I was huge into comic books. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't cool then. That was very nerdy behavior. Sure. And I, I was a failure on two fronts with Dungeons and Dragons. Number one, <laughs> at that time, that wasn't cool either. So you were a failure for playing mm-hmm. and I never got it. <laughs> so <laughs> I wasn't very good. So you at just it. couldn't. You couldn't win. I couldn't. What, what What were you nerding out on at that age? What was classical fucking music <laughs> at nine, ten years old? Yes, that was the problem. I was not at the skater rink. I was not doing what the cool kids were doing. Huh. I was at home with my flute. You know, at home with with my bassoon. And here okay. we are. <laughs> well, it worked out. Yeah, in some ways. Okay, so. This 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 question might sound naive, so forgive me if it is. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even when you were reading, you know, books that weren't music oriented, yeah. If it wasn't centered in a as a if a black character wasn't in the center of it, didn't you in your mind go ahead and put yourself in that spot? I mean, didn't you build out the world in your mind to be black? It's it's interesting that you ask that because I think in so many stories or so many things that were you know fed to me and my generation yeah we can put ourselves in it but there's so much about that world about that setting that we have to change it just would have been so affirming not that you know i was an out child i was i was a gay boy mm-hmm. you know like no questions about that but just seeing a non comedic gay character in mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. would have been beneficial certainly a black character when i was you know coming up in uh like i don't know by the time i was in 
maybe ninth or tenth grade, Will and Grace was on TV. Right. But how am I supposed to relate Identify to a, a rich gay New Yorker who lives in this penthouse? Da da da, and you know all all of that stuff. So that 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 just wasn't there. I, I will say there was one show that came along. Shout out to everyone who knows the show uh, Noah's Ark. That that did help. But just seeing a serious uh, uh, portrayal of a a queer story or a romantic. Uh, portrayal of a queer story that that really really would have been beneficial to me the other thing that i think about is this idea of black excellence being taken away uh from it being a measure of whiteness at the end of the day or, or proximity to to mm. whiteness you know tucking in your shirt you know keeping short hair doing x y and z so that you can fit into certain systems right. you know even beyond having uh like queer examples in, in in my childhood i would have loved to you know see the forward leaning very progressive pro black sentiments that quest love puts out that have nothing to do with you know growing up to work at a bank or to or to even to be a doctor or a lawyer but just really celebrating blackness in that way and I'm from Memphis I'm I'm from a majority black city but I'll say you know even back in those days this idea of achievement success excellence was always affixed to something that in retrospect to me didn't celebrate blackness the way that I celebrated and the way the quest love is follow up question what was the first character that did that obviously you were a little older right yeah, I'm really trying to think because we had Fresh Prince and a different world and, mm -hmm. you know, the the COSBY show. You know, I don't even know if we could say his name anymore, <laughs> but, you know, so we so we we had those. Um, but I, I don't know. Just it's it's different. I, I think it's OK to be. Uh, it's much more okay in the mainstream these days to be very Afrocentric, to have a fro, to wear locks like mm -hmm. I do, to not dress in a in a Western way, to really celebrate blackness and Africanness just in an everyday thing. That exists more now than it did back then, and I think at the end of the day that that's really what I would have appreciated. And again, it's what Questlove is bringing to the front to the next generation. Yeah. So you know we're 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 happy and proud of him. Rudy, get in the jello. <laughs> uh, the other thing I want to uh, highlight before we leave this is that Questlove is even going into academia in some really interesting ways. Uh, it says here, as previously reported by Afrotech, the Philadelphia native has always had a love for creating space for his fellow creatives. In 2022, Questlove partnered with the PhD program in creativity at the University of Arts in Philadelphia to launch uh, a fellowship that offers folks funding to actually finish up their PhD. So that program kicked off last June um, and it offers its recipients a fully funded three-year track uh, in the PhD program of creativity at that school. So he's making a mark. He's he's leaving an, an imprint. There's something going on in Philadelphia. Yeah. Two weeks ago, two weeks in a row, Philadelphia is like in the front, in the front row. And then you got Yannick there. So, yep. you know, it's a, even the orchestra is acting right. <laughs> anyway, so huge shout out and congratulations to Questlove. We love to see it, you know, love our love our black joy stories and black excellence stories, excellence as defined by us. 
Um, shout so, out to all the Johns listening right now. <laughs> so we're going to uh, transition into the second movement with a roots track, naturally, you know, because that's where uh, Questlove cut his teeth in, in many ways. And they actually have a track called The Next Movement. How convenient. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that to get to the next movement of this week's opus. Did you spend much time with the Roots when they were really at the front as a as a band? I no, I didn't. Yeah, the the they had one track that featured Erica Badu uh, called "You Got Me" that I, that really mm. circled around. I, I have the vinyl out there; I can uh, put it on later. But okay. it's just, I, I again, I just love to see not only the individual who is really really talented talented musically, but can translate that to other mediums and to other things to just you know spread the the impact, spread the the everything. Mm. Plus, you know, as a musician, it's always safe to have something else going on you know i think COVID <laughs> yeah. taught us that in in many ways and you know it's it's a sign of what so many have done you know back to blair tyndall she could have beat the block with these uh, uh oboe auditions for her entire career or she could play the oboe on her terms and figure out something else to you know get her a, a, a mini cooper she was she, yeah. she was a fellow mini cooper driver oh, good yeah we used to talk about that a bit but anyway we are here in the second movement where scott and i are gonna share a little music that we've been spending some time with on our on our on our own time what you got for this week get us started sure um this is a, a brand new find for me an artist by the name of mobley hmm. and in particular there was a a piece that came across called stay volk stay volk, volk. oh okay v-o-l-k <laughs> right and um the music video was what introduced me to it and i was mesmerized by it it's just a man on stage uh, or a, like a like an abandoned factory mm -hmm. or something, like an old decaying building, doing some modern dance with ballet. And he's got like an old school television, like the kind with the rabbit ears, right. on his head. And, and the video is showing his face, but it's doing all this weird digital stuff. You know, mm -hmm. eyes will go in different directions and he, it, it glitches and, and all this sorts of thing. And he does this really amazing dance routine while wearing it mm. and i found out later that he actually conceived choreographed and directed the video again interdisciplinary multi-talented right um and i can't help but think if maybe it is some sort of a comment on the way that we consume video mm. about how intently focused we, we we how our heads are drawn to video sure. you know it'll you know you can have the most interesting thing happen happen in front of you. Somebody turns on a TV and you're going to turn your head and look to see what's mm -hmm. on. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's some sort of commentary on we've got our heads in the TV. I don't sure. know. But um, Stay Volk is actually a takeoff on Herrenvolk. You know that? Mm -mm. Ooh, 
it, the meaning of Herrenvolk is a master race, oh. uh, according to um, Hitler and and his ilk. And so basically, this song "Stay Volk" comes uh, was essentially inspired by Charlottesville, as people are uh, approaching these monuments with with torches and such. Mm. So, um, yeah, "Stay Volk" is uh, the track. They only came to see the park at night. They only brought the torches for the light. They only think we're all just too uptight. And everybody knows they've got the Yeah, I can hear the references to Charlottesville in there. I remember exactly where I was when all that went down. That happened during a Gateways music festival. Mm. So you have all of these black musicians from around the world. We have a black joy, have an incredible time. And then this is a part of the news that we have to take in for for that week. The thing that I always used to say, you know, one of the lyrics uh, in that track by Mobley, he says they only uh, brought the torches for the light, for the light. Or, you know. They can't even be white supremacists in the way that they light the darkness at night with these tiki torches, with these Polynesian style right. tiki torches. You know, it, it just shows the ignorance and, and the fallacy of the racism that they were trying to uh, uh, instigate or, or do in the first place. You you can't even be racist without celebrating culture. You see, what, mm. what are you even talking about? Mm. He says here, I found a story about it. The video is a metaphor exploring the tension between one's authentic self and the performance that is often required by society. I ooh, feel that. Ooh, I feel, I feel that, that too. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the face that you have to show versus the one that you feel like you have to hide or yeah. the one that you would prefer to show. Yeah, definitely check out Mobley. He said, for the video, I wanted to explore the lyrical themes while also keeping sight of how fun and danceable the music is. Yeah, so it sort of reminded me a little bit of This Is America. Yeah. Uh, the um, Childish Gambino. Childish yeah. Gambino's track. Because you can you know, you know, can feel the beat and, and all that while still having fun with the music. And the, the message is um, important. Yeah, I could break a- apart those lyrics all day. You know, they... Uh, they, they think we're all just too uptight, like, oh, I'm just looking for something to call racist. Mm-hmm. I'm just look, you know, and that's not the case. You know, we want to live our free black lives, not talk about racism all day. But that's what our work requires sometimes. Anyway, really great track there, Mobley. I hadn't hadn't heard of Mobley. He's new one on me, to, too. Uh, checking out more. Well, you know, speaking of places where you can <laughs> let your hair down, or you know, literally in this case, but uh, also just show your real face. I feel like certainly in Black culture, the barbershop beauty shop is that. So you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. so again, shout out to Jenny who who keeps my hair right. Uh, she she puts me on to a lot of music, and uh, I went and saw her last week, and she uh, wanted to talk with me about an artist named Masego. Have you ever heard of Masego? Um, I want to say yeah, but I don't know why. 
Well, there's actually there's that one track that uh, called Kapow that you uh, used to play. Tadow. Yeah, Tadow. Yeah. It's, Tadow. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of, anyway, if you don't know, Masego I didn't uh, know that was him. is a, a multi-instrumentalist and a really cool uh, guitarist. He, he sounds mm. really great. And he uh, recently came out uh, with, a, with a project. And uh, one of the one of the tracks from it is called Remembering Sundays. I've been kind of just scrolling through his latest album. And there's something about this track that has really resonated with me. So I wanted to bring it in today. I remember Sundays. I felt no time when the world was something large and strange. I need a small town. Don't know where to live now. I need emotion. I need a caravan, hate a Mercedes Benz I don't rap a stackin' rubber bands Never second guessing who I am Lost boy, Peter Pan Waiting a lot at the summer jam Getting used to all the screaming fans Backstage is where I truly am All these spirits in the devil hands All these spirits in the devil hands The tune and the album, the new 2023 album, is called Remembering Sundays. And I think the reason that resonates with me so much is because it's sort of this tug of war, this push and pull between, okay, this is everything I'm working for. This is the notoriety. This is the fast paced life. But also I remember something that's different. You know, I I feel at peace backstage with all those people uh, screaming, screaming out there. I even think that push and pull is uh, exhibited musically with mm. the hook, you know, the chorus being this very smooth, laid back on the porch thing with the uh, with the verses being more intense, being more in the hip hop rap style. Really, really, really great uh, juxtaposition of those two things and uh, a really excellent display of of musicality at the same time, especially considering, you know, how much he is able to uh, produce things top to bottom, back to front with layering and, and all those sorts of things. Really happy to have been introduced to Masego. And of, of course, go check out Tadao because that, I mean, <laughs> that'll be an almost constant rotation for you for a little while once you hear that one. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, well, we're uh, coming up to the third movement. I'm very honored to feature this week's Stanford Thompson. He is the uh, father, I'll say, of Play On Philly, uh, an, an organization that has really transformed, again, the Philadelphia area and, and what's uh, going on there with music education. He's since moved on uh, from Play On Philly and now leads an organization called Equity Arc, which is working uh, not only towards equity in the art and the arts, but doing so intentionally, doing so by really partnering with orchestras, identifying who wants to do the work and do it now and moving forward. Uh, um, his uh, latest partner, I believe, was the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. So we talk a little bit about that uh, in the conversation and where he thinks we are as a field and what we need to do to really participate in our world uh, in a way that we should as uh, arts institutions. Um, as incredible of a track record uh, Stan has in the in the field of equity and just entrepreneurship, I remember him as a trumpeter. That's how I first met him back mm. in the day, I think uh, from Sphinx or something along those lines. So I was searching the internets and I found an old recording of Stan playing the trumpet and he sounds really good. I'm, I have to say this uh, performance comes from the National Black Arts Festival uh, down in Atlanta 
in 2005. He's featured in the opening movement here, an excerpt uh, from uh, Johann Hummel's Trumpet Concerto. Uh, it looks like it's led, uh, yeah, it is, it's led by the late, great Michael Morgan. So uh, a black-on-black performance, um, playing some European music, but doing it very well. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that uh, to get us into my conversation with Stanford Thompson. Hope y'all enjoy. So I, I think of equity of being about fairness and justice um, and making sure that of, of not kind of conflating both equity and equality, hmm. um, you know, where equality is like everybody gets the same thing, um, as you know, uh, but equity is, you know, how do we take into account people's life experiences, uh, the resources they have? Um, the networks they have access to, um, and really provide something that is fair, um, and you know something that is connected to you know justice for all. So when we talk about the way that equity initiatives within the arts have manifested over the past several decades, we still see that black and brown musicians specifically still fall by the wayside. I wonder what's your answer to that? There has been an increase in diversity in some ways, but we're still not hitting the mark there. Yeah, so I think first it comes down to defining what diversity really means uh, in this space. Um, and uh, it's you know, it's, it's hard for organizations to be diverse or for people to be diverse or organizations to be diverse. Um, and I think it goes much further than just trying to change the faces on stage. Um, so for the most part, I believe that we have a really long way to go. I'm just really happy that there are people like you and myself that are at the front end of this push with hopes that when we retire in 30, 40 years, um, that we see something that is completely different in terms of diversity. Um, so at the end of the day, it is just very, very clear that our field is dominated um, by uh, uh, Caucasians and uh, East Asians. Um, and I just think that there is plenty of room for more voices to emerge more people to be on stage. Um, I think for the art to better reflect where this country is moving, which also includes some of the challenges this country has. Um, and classical music could be a very powerful tool. Um, just like we, we all know that classical music was a very powerful tool throughout Europe, um, you know, through its kind of early development in the first couple of centuries. So, um, I think something like that can happen here in the United States um, and be more reflective of our co a collective experience in this country. I wonder if you'll talk about the way in which you got to this work. You know, as as seventh graders or fourth graders, we don't jump into music as fighters for equity. How did your trumpet playing and your music education get you to where you are today? 
Yeah, so uh, this is all connected to my parents, who are both retired music educators. Uh, my father grew up in Jackson, Mississippi in the early 40s. Uh, my mom grew up on the south side of Chicago in the mid-50s. On my dad's side of the story, fought in Vietnam War. He experienced, I mean, all sorts of issues growing up in Mississippi, um, serving in the military, trying to serve our country, um, trying to get back on his feet afterwards. Uh, my mother's side of the story is that she was one of seven kids who helped to integrate the Chicago public schools in the 60s. Um, and when both of them met at IU, Indiana University, um, I think that they had, first of all, they were hardwired in a certain way. Um, they fought through a lot to even get there. And I think when they started raising their kids, there are eight of us, um, I think that the way that they raised us, the way they made us think, um, uh, really influenced how I took to music and many of my siblings took to music and the, what we were expecting out of that experience. Um, so I would certainly say this was not because I read a book or, or went to a workshop uh, when I was 16 years old, but then I also had a chance to be influenced by people like Wynton Marsalis, um, who was a very early mentor of mine um, and a big thinker in this space of what music means, especially with jazz uh, today, but also with classical. So those were all of my influences, a big pot. And I just knew that going through a very conservative place like the Curtis Institute of Music, although my education was great, it really started, it showed me clearly where the inequities were, who had access to what types of resources. I was lucky to be one of those to have that type of access. And I've just decided before I graduated, I'm going to spend my entire career trying to make things better for the next crew that's coming through. Um, just like a lot of people paved the way for you and I today. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a similar way, you know, I, I th I'm thinking about myself right now, because while I do still play the bassoon, it's just not the centerpiece of the work that I do anymore. My, my calling is different. I feel like for many musicians, there's this conversation of both and or is it choosing one path? I wonder how you engage the trumpet today and if <laughs> the work that you do allows for, you know, further engagement of of what got you into this field in the first place. Yeah. So. Number one, uh, because of the role that I play today, um, I don't have to do everything uh, mm -hmm. in terms of trumpet playing. I, I do not miss having to take every single gig, that type of thing. I will also say that these days I've been kind of going back to my roots in terms of uh, my musical upbringing. There was a lot of jazz in my household. Um, and quite frankly, it were only, although all seven of my siblings and I played an instrument, it was kind of the jazz side of the family that took it on professionally. So mm. saxophone, bass, trumpet, myself, and percussion. Um, so that was kind of a big part of my upbringing, how I came to understand music, the connection uh, with jazz and African roots and, and music in America. Um, so I've been working a lot quietly on my own in my room, um, <laughs> you know, playing a lot of jazz. I'll, I'll get the nerve up to go do some jam sessions, uh, perhaps this summer. Um, but it's been very interesting to um, do a lot more research um, on, um, you know, jazz's influence on classical music, especially, um, and learning about all sorts of, you know, composers 
um, and styles and everything that I just was not exposed to earlier on. And it's great to see that there's so many more orchestras, chamber music groups, soloists that are also kind of getting hip to it as well. So um, it's it's been really how I express myself these days. And you've done so much for the field, you know, out, outside of your trumpet playing. We aren't here to talk about Play on Philly, but I will just say that name for folks who are unfamiliar with the organization to go take a look. But I want to talk a little bit about Equity Arc. I wonder if you could just contextualize what this is. It, uh, I understand that the brand, even the name has recently changed. Just speak a little bit to the trajectory of uh, Equity Arc and what its mission is. So I think Equity, equity Arc is really a culmination of so many conversations that I've had, uh, Garrett, with yourself, with colleagues like Weston Sprott and Shea Scruggs, um, Alex Lang, um, you know, so many that have been tremendous thought leaders um, and also, you know, organizational um, and artistic leaders in so many respects. Um, and overall, I think that I have always recognized that my journey um, has been made possible by so many people and organizations along the way that have passed me on the mentorship from my parents um, and their support. Um, and then I think those that have come before us um, that have certainly not only paved the way, but also found ways to lift myself up, lift others. I know that we could tell these stories forever. Um, and in thinking about those stories and trajectories, the concept of equity art, um, you know, being a national uh, service organization for those groups that are trying to tear down barriers for BIPOC classical musicians um, came together to say, you know, if we work together, identifying a cohort of musicians to help along the way from the moment they touch an instrument to the day that they can start their professional career, knowing they can pay their bills um, and live their lives to their fullest, that we want to find a way to facilitate those steps um, through the help of the organizations that are members of Equity Arc. What is the role of repertoire and I think more specifically aesthetic in that work. So you're talking about the day they pick up an instrument to starting their professional career. Maybe I would have been a jazz bassoonist if that was the thing that was on my radar or something that I knew could be possible. I wonder if that's a part of the work of Equity Arc, really expanding possibilities beyond what may have been laid out before us when we were youngsters. Yeah. So I would say that we're really focused on how do we help these musicians get to professional stages? Mm. And what we haven't yet defined is really what that stage looks like. And instead of equity arc defining that stage, we want the musicians to design that stage. Um, so I think that as we continue this work, it could be, you know, Garrett launching his career as a professional jazz bassoonist. To us, that is success. And especially if Garrett and, you know, BIPOC musicians of, of color that have kind of been trained in the classical traditions, if they can find their voice on professional stages and I think help move the entire field forward. Um, so we're open to however that looks like in the future, not just, oh, how can we get them ready for orchestral auditions? Or how do we get them ready for, you know, military um, uh, ensemble auditions, those, you know, more traditional paths.
You mentioned before that this work is so much more than just changing the face of who's on stage. I wonder if you could speak to the work of Equity Arc as it uh, applies to arts administrators, music educators, other stakeholders in the field. Yeah, so organizations are, you know, they're comprised of people. Um, and all of us have our flaws. Um, perhaps I think some of us might have more flaws than others. Um, <laughs> excuse me. But I will say that um, I think the most important thing is that we know that these organizations have developed policies. Um, uh, they put up barriers, um, you know, to access that need to come down, that need to be changed in order for more equitable opportunities to be provided um, to underrepresented musicians. Um, and I would say that in working with these organizations, we understand that if people don't understand their biases, they don't understand how the organizations are constructed, then we can't make progress. I don't believe that we need to be telling BIPOC classical musicians, just get better, mm -hmm. practice more hours, um, you'll be fine. I really think that that is only halfway of the journey because we know that a lot of these organizations have been constructed to reward privilege, um, to reward those that have access to information uh, that isn't easily available. Um, it rewards those that have been able to be mentored in ways, even from very young ages, where we prop up their musical success over the musical success of others that quite frankly, could still connect with audiences in a meaningful way, um, but are often overlooked. So when we talk about these uh, partnerships and, and other stakeholders beyond the musicians, I'm thinking about Equity Arc's recent collaboration with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. I understand that uh, that was built off of a previous uh, collaboration with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I wonder what the process is like for identifying uh, these institutional partners. It's one thing to talk about grassroots and let's educate our X, Y, and Zs, but it seems like identifying those, you know, so-called top level partners is also an important part of the work. Right. Uh, and also a challenging part of the work. Hmm. Um, both the Chicago Symphony and Cincinnati Symphony Orchestras, they've been very, very helpful uh, to us along this journey. Uh, first, I will say that with the Chicago Symphony, they took the first chance and helping us to assemble a pre-college Pathways Festival Orchestra. Uh, the Cincinnati Symphony, they've been partners with us from the very beginning, providing logistical support, back office you know, uh, support as well, um, helping to take care of our two full-time staff members, um, and also providing a lot of guidance to the development of the organization. But um, you know, this past um, uh, festival that we had, um, in Cincinnati was also a chance for us to grow the Pathways Festival Orchestra project and also help us to continue a conversation among the adults and administrators in the room mm -hmm. um, to think about what types of changes that we can make individually, how we can partner and collaborate in new ways, and also how we can focus on the holistic development of the musicians of color that we're all working with. 
How did you manage to initiate these conversations? I know that, you know, maintaining relationships and continuing the dialogue is a, a huge thing, but is it a matter of being at the right conference? Is it sending a cold call email? What, what has that looked like for you? I think developing relationships. Um, the relationships that we've been able to develop with members of the Chicago Symphony staff, some of their funders, uh, some of their partner organizations, that's what led us um, to developing that first festival there um, in April of 22. Um, the, you know, Jonathan Martin, who runs the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, he's been a friend and a partner all along. He's understood this work. Years ago, we were scratching our heads about what can we actually do? And he stayed at the table and thinking through different ideas. And then when he, when he saw that we needed some help getting started, um, because of that relationship and that understanding, he really put a lot of resources from the Cincinnati Symphony behind us. So um, I would say that's really, that's been my style. I'm sure there might be a cold call to try to establish some type of relationship, but I also want to understand who I'm going to be working with mm -hmm. before I start working with them. Because at this time of day, I will say, I think a lot of organizations are eager to do projects with black and brown people um, and not necessarily in the most genuine way and organizations that aren't really ready to do the real work. Um, so I have tried to be very, very careful, um, but also understand that everybody's on a journey. I appreciate everybody wanting to do something. Um, but at the same time, I think Equity Art provides an opportunity to help provide a little bit more guidance um, and to build relationships with these organizations in meaningful ways that will help the musicians we're trying to get across the finish line. Yeah, one thing I want to ask you, and, and <laughs> some people may consider this sort of a spicier part of the dialogue, I think there, uh, because of the diversity of the Black experience and Black musicianship, there are many Black musicians who have no problem with that straight down the middle so-called traditional way of engaging this music, this conversation. And I think that there are a lot of organizations who intentionally seek out people of color who can perpetuate their systems as opposed to engaging with people of color that would change the systems. I wonder if that's uh, if, if that concept or that dialogue is a part of uh, the work that you've been doing. Yes. And I would say that a lot of professionals that I've come across in the field, let's call them professional administrators, I think kind of regardless of the group that's kind of not in their dominant sphere, they're doing the same thing. Mm. Um, if it's with Hispanic Heritage Month, if it's with, you know, Native American populations, um, you know, I mean, even with the LGBT community as well, um, and doing different pride concerts or, you know, events, these types of things. I think it's about the same type of construct where some of this is connected to funders reward them for doing these types of events. Um, there are audiences, you know, it's a kind of a quick checkbox win um, to do something, to, you know, try to go into a certain community. Um, you know, uh, it's been interesting to see a lot of these concerts move from the concert hall to the types of communities they're trying to serve. But it's still in that checkbox, very transactional way. Mm. So um, I would just say that overall, 
it is really hard for organizations to really put in resources um, to do ongoing projects to really make some of this work as part of their DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, I still think that a lot of the administrators and board members just have a hard time figuring out what can we do? Um, or we think that we're doing the, the very best that's out there. Um, and honestly, a lot of times these organizations just emulate each other if they think somebody else is doing something amazing. So for example, it's like, um, um, you know, uh, Jesse Montgomery's writing really great stuff. Gabrielle Lena Frank's writing really great stuff. Great, wonderful. Um, it seems really popular. That seems part of the conversation. So let's everybody program her stuff, um, you know, their stuff. Mm -hmm. um, let's all, um, you know, present it. And we're sitting there thinking like, okay, it's wonderful that you have checked that box. But collectively, if we're only moving forward three or four voices in this field, Valerie Coleman, uh, Jesse Montgomery, Gab Gabrielle Elena Frank. I mean, these are the names that we hear all the time. Yep. In addition to the names of the old of uh, Florence Price and William Dawson and the stuff that we're seeing programmed today, we're missing so many more voices. And like what we're trying to do with Equity Art is to say, if we all think more carefully about this, we can open up the floodgates by instead of us all performing the same seven works, for two seasons, what does it actually look like to commission works, to bring new voices into the room, um, new soloists as well, to get them up on the stage so that we have maybe moved 50 people forward every season instead of just two or three? Um, I'm oversimplifying this just a little bit, but I don't sure. think that I'm that off. So let's turn that you know, accountability back on Equity Arc, specifically to the uh, recent collaboration with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. We had the New Pathways Festival Orchestra. I wonder what the mechanisms were uh, that you engaged to make sure that selection of musicians was equitable and beyond what has been typical selection of repertoire. What did that look like from the inside? So from the inside, we were trying to uh, balance between how do we help push the young musicians uh, that we are working with um, and also provide the type of support and mentorship that, that they need? Um, so, so, you know, first of all, we made sure um, that we, th that the students were performing some standard repertoire, so Dvorak's um, New World Symphony, but also wanted to introduce them to uh, Brian Raphael Neighbors' work, uh, Post for Orchestra. Um, we wanted to make sure that the conductors on the stage working with them um, also reflected you know, their experience. So we were able to bring in uh, Kevin John um, Udesai from uh, Germany to work with them uh, this year. Um, uh, uh, last year we had uh, Lena Gonzalez um granados uh working with the students uh in addition to ricardo muti so we've all we, we wanted we want to strike this balance where they are being mentored they're being inspired by musicians that look like them composers that also look like them and reflect their experience but at the same time making sure that they understand 
um, that there is a connection between some of the repertoire that is healthy for them to know, but within the right context mm-hmm. to for, to make sure that they know that, of course, Dvorak 9 is a piece that many of them have already played. They're going to keep hearing again, but let's understand the context and what and how Dvorak used uh, melodies and folk music, um, not only from the Czech Republic and all of his other work, but how he also came to this country um, and also used some stuff that a lot of people think is his stuff. Um, So, um, and then surrounding the orchestra experience, we wanted to make sure that the uh, Pathways Fellows, they had an opportunity to talk directly to conservatory presidents um, the heads of summer camps, um, of professional orchestras, to also share their experiences and their insights. And it was pretty revealing um, of hearing the conversations with my colleagues once the kids left the room of saying that they realize more and more they are off the mark, mm. that there's a group of young people coming through that might not ever connect with their organizations or you know their schools or orchestras those types of things because what they're doing what they're performing just does not fit the type of life they want to have in music so the question is if they want to check their boxes in terms of diversity and all these other things we've talked about and inclusion um they're going to have a hard time doing that um, without making some pretty substance, substantive changes. Um, and Garrett, to give you a quick example, even as the kids are looking to audition for college, the question is, why can't they play a piece by Florence Price mm-hmm. um, for their audition and have it recognized and stand side by side with a Tchaikovsky concerto um, to be able to show their musicianship, what they're able to do technically and musically and have it be judged um, you know, just, you know, as, uh, uh, as, as easy as, uh, the more, more standard repertoire that's on the audition list. So those are the types of things. Um, and then internally within the institutions, it goes on and on <laughs> as what you and I have also experienced. I wonder how far you would expand this renewed approach to, you know, specifically what you're speaking to college auditions. So if I am on an audition panel and we're auditioning pianists, if their Rachmaninoff concerto is a B plus, but they can improvise their ass off over a set of changes that for me, that might be someone I would more seriously consider as opposed to the pianist who gives flawless Rachmaninoff, but can't really improvise. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on just really expanding those gates, those those opening sort of interactions between students and colleges when it comes to their musical abilities. Well, this one's kind of tough, um, simply because I believe a well-rounded musician needs to know how to speak all of these musical languages, first of all. I don't care, care what color they are. Mm-hmm. I still think that if one can't, if to graduate a bass player from an institution and they can't play some changes. Right. I mean, to me, <laughs> that's kind of a disservice uh, in a way. Um, so, yeah, I would certainly say that um, I think that there is room to do both and to celebrate both. Um, because I also think that 
sending musicians out that can only play over changes and not be able to play different styles and things like that, I think is also a disservice. Fair. Yeah. Um, so I would love to see more of it. I also think that would lead to more crossover and exploration of styles. Um, I think some of the most exciting music that's being performed today is by those groups. Um, I think about the public quartet, uh, for example, and their ability to do that so well. And you have groups like the Harlem Quartet that also do it well, but I just think, you know, some of these groups is so much more exciting, but I still appreciate the Dover Quartet, mm -hmm. for example, um, and what they're able to do. Uh, but if I'm going to buy a ticket, um, definitely would be with the public quartet. So um, that's just kind of one of those examples of just uh, being well-rounded, um, because I just think that when that happens, uh, just the whole art form can move forward in ways um, that still respects the past where it came from. But it also brings to the forefront, like what's happening in society today um, how our audiences are evolving, and of course, the musical backgrounds and the personal backgrounds of the musicians on stage. Considering the impact that you've had on this specific corner of the classical music field, I don't imagine that you're too shocked by things that you experience or see, but I, I still feel compelled to ask, based on the 2023 uh, New Pathways Festival, did you take anything away from it that you weren't expecting or, or anything that still managed to surprise you, again, considering the work that you've already done in this in this corner of the field? Yeah, one is around, especially for pre-college musicians and younger, the important role that family members play in their journey um, and the type of support that parents need um, in helping their kids in ways that, for the most part, they don't really know what to do, um, but they they love their kids. They want to see their kids thrive. It's just happening in music in a whole world that they don't quite understand. The other thing that came up was around kind of the mental and emotional health hmm. of musicians in general and the correlation between them having kind of like out of body experiences where they're forced to be in environments um, working within you know, even a stressful situation, that's not the type of environment that they have grown up with. And many of these musicians, they know stress, yeah. they know hardship, <laughs> they know how to work hard, all of that stuff. But then you put that into a completely foreign environment that's not um, uh, helpful and healthy. It was very interesting to start to see some of the correlations between mental health, emotional health, and um, the connection with the environments that they are pretty much forced to make music in or train in, those types of things. Um, and then I would say the last thing that came up was really a sincere desire from my colleagues to be better and to do better. Um, and there was a lot of honest truth that came out. I mentioned this before where a lot of people still don't know what to do or how to do it, but they're willing to listen. So I'm very interested in what it means to create healthier dialogue, more dialogue, but at the same time, helping to establish some accountability 
to say that we've talked about this, we've established this, now we need to see what is changing. So that with Equity Arc's annual convening, we'll always be coming back to what changed over the past year. How are we still short? Where were some parts that really surprised us and we excelled as a field? Because looking at the young musicians that are on the stage, they want to be on a stage in the future. Mm-hmm. It's our job to help them get there. And in some instances, they're paying a lot of money and tuition to get there. Um, so we need to deliver something that's better. I want to, again, touch on that uh, desire to do better piece that you were just speaking to. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, someone in particular, my friend uh, Caesar, who lives in New York. A point that he makes in this work is that he remembers, he's old enough to remember when uh, Sanford Allen became the New York Philharmonic's first black musician. And fast forward all these years later, we still only have one. So the, the institutions must not care or must not really want to do the work. For the sake of people who have more of an outside perspective and may not know, you know, the things that you know, building the relationships that you've had, I I wonder if you could speak to what are some of the barriers that the people inside of these institutions are facing that keep their desires from actually manifesting? Wow. Um, Well, I mean, this makes me think of Taga Larson. And the Chicago Symphony, I was like in the seventh or eighth grade when he got that job, the first African-American to be hired by the Chicago Symphony. And fast forward 22, 23 years, he's still been the only African-American hired in that orchestra. Um, So, I mean, that's one that resonates a lot with me. And I remember when we had the kids in Chicago um, last year with the Pathways Festival, it was like, ooh, yeah. The thing that I think is really challenging is that we have been recycling the same energy and the same ideas for decades. And I believe that is the hardest part because a lot of these orchestras, since, you know, Gareth, you brought that up about the New York Philharmonic, I brought it up about the Chicago Symphony. Um, But I think this is the same type of issue that we see in our major conservatories and and other ensembles that it's really easy to be comfortable with hiring replacing people that think the same Mm -hmm. um, because there are certain aspects of the organization uh, the organizational culture that you want to preserve and move forward within that culture are these really flawed um, policies and practices um, that the organization fundamentally believes does things like, for example, we want to maintain the quality of our musicians. So our audition process that has been tested and tried for decades and decades and decades, it just can't change because if we do one thing different, then it's going to change the quality Mm. of the musicians and, of course, the musical outcome or musical outputs. And, of course, you and I, we're sitting there like, nah, it's not going to change anything. Um, Just like putting carpet on the floor and putting the screen up didn't change anything. Um, But I think that it is time for some new internal pressures to change things. And I think back to the number of women in orchestras, which now today, I believe, sits around 49% 
based upon one of the last demographic reports that the League of American Orchestras put out um, set several years ago. Um, and there's this part of me that just refused to believe that all of a sudden in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that women just started practicing and getting better <laughs> right? Um, so that they could compete with the men. And from some uh, sources that I've heard, um, again, we'll say that this is a, a big assumption, but one big push for orchestras, for example, were to build their endowments. And a lot of husbands um, that control the money uh, were dying. Their wives were left with the money. As they were trying to build these endowments, a lot of these women made it really clear. They wanted to see more women on stage that were qualified to be there. Um, so there was a huge change in the number of women that have found themselves on stage. And I just think that as the screen dropped in the final round and women were there on the stage, they had to make a decision what they were going to do. So, um, excuse me, in seeing this same situation play out, I'm wondering where is the pressure to make different decisions? And should that pressure come from the board? Should it come from funders? Should it come from those in the audience? Because I would say it coming from people like you and I is not enough mm. to really make the change happen. Sure, our voices are being amplified. The problems are out there. But let's say, let's get this thing fixed. And I still know of too many issues. Um, if I'm thinking about some recent hires in our field of black and brown people, and with a good number of those hires, the types of issues that have happened um, you know, in the background, um, I would just say that that uh, we still have a long way to go uh, with this work. Um, but pressure needs to come from somewhere else. Accountability needs to be from within. And we still have a lot to do to change some of the old practices. And I just have a feeling until we get some different people in the room making those decisions, we're going to see a lot of the same, let's preserve our culture. Is it fair to ask for some of that pressure to come from orchestral musicians. If let, let, let's, let's paint a, a hypothetical picture here. 50% of music, uh, professional musicians across the United States decided we're not going to play until X, Y, and Z from our organization. Is that, is that something that you see as uh, a necessary or even helpful uh, solution when you're talking about other people applying pressure? Yes. And I think that we're starting to see a lot more of that. For example, many orchestras have uh, announced fellowship programs. Atlanta, Boston, um, I know that there's a couple of other big orchestras that are also um, uh, creating their programs as well. I feel a little different about these programs and the types of resources they provide. Some orchestras just have access to more resources to help those musicians, and other orchestras don't. But a lot of that energy is coming from within, hmm. that the orchestra musicians, um, the musicians committees are voting in favor of starting these programs and really getting them off the ground. Um, Atlanta is an example in this. Um, you know, they are launching or maybe just launched their fellowship program. 
But it was great to see that in their pre-college training program, the very first musician, um, a new cellist, uh, Danielle, blanking on her last name now, um, has gone through the pre-college training program and is the first musician the Atlanta Symphony has hired from that program as a full-time member. Um, and the fellowship program taking shape, you know, they will have a chance to mentor, um, I believe, two tuba players. Um, I think probably a first seeing brass players in these fellowship programs mm-hmm. um, and being able to train from there. And that energy is coming from within the orchestra. So I hope that there are more ways to shine a spotlight on these musicians that are really standing up and saying, this orchestra needs to be better. And and these are our, our white colleagues, quite frankly. Um, and I remember, you know, this whole thing of, I can't remember who said this quote, but, you know, the civil rights mo- movement that was fought with white and black people holding hands together. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a situation and opportunities for everybody to ask themselves, the marketing teams, the fundraising teams, the musicians on stage, for example, the librarians, everybody can do something to make a very substantive change in this field. And one of the jobs of Equity Arc is that we're trying to highlight these types of changes that can be made within, get people to understand. I I want all the librarians across the country to be talking to each other and sharing what they're learning about music, um, you know, different pieces, all of the stuff that they're putting on stage. Um, Same thing, I want these musician committees to also realize what they can do because having a musician fighting with a board member um, about something that they should be doing, you know, like, hey, pay me some more money. um, I think let's reflect and say, how can these musician committees make different decisions when they have musicians in front of them trying to get in the orchestra and join their ranks? Because I didn't feel I would have that support when I left Curtis. I didn't go down that path. Mm. I want these young people we're seeing in this festival orchestra, by the time they get out of college in the next four to six years, I want them to feel that the musicians that are behind that screen have their back, have their best interests in mind, and are going to make decisions in a different way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I have one more question I want to throw at you, but before I do, for all of the musicians, CEOs, board members listening, how can they engage Equity Arc and maybe become a partner in your work? Sure. So going to equityarcarc.org, and you can find more information about the programs that we offer, the services, um, but also information on becoming a member. People can join as individual members, individual artist members, um, organizations that have a very clear diversity-related, you know, um, initiative. Organizations that don't quite have one, but they want to be part of the work and maybe develop one of their own. Uh, there are consulting services that we provide for those that are trying to figure out how to be involved. And of course, there are projects like our festival orchestra, our common application for summer camps that um, organizations can be part of, um, people can donate towards, and really be part of the work that we're all doing at Equity Arc. 
So one, I want to, in closing, I want to circle back to one of the uh, things you said previously when we're talking about uh, the broader change that this type of work ushers in. We aren't, we don't need to talk about a lack of uh, excellence or the standard, you know, whatever those words are. But from my perspective, if we're imagining an orchestral field that has, you know, 50 to 60, even more BIPOC representation and participation, it does seem to me that there will be foundational differences in the field. I wonder what you see in that imaginary reality, maybe that future we're working toward. What are some of the changes that orchestras and their audiences need to be prepared to engage? I think there's going to be much more um, connecting the art to social issues of today here in this country. And overall, I think we have a hard time engaging in that type of dialogue. What I'm hoping and what I think there's a huge opportunity is that through art, we can have dialogue in a way that can be difficult for two people um, sitting even right next to each other in the hall to have. Um, so I think that that is one really, really big opportunity. And the, the other thing that I see is uh, I go to concerts quite a bit. There's still a lot of empty seats out there. And every time I look at those empty seats, I'm thinking about not like how do we fill the hall with the same composition of people that's in the room. I'm just thinking about all the people that are missing in the room. And each one of those seats represents um, a, a different person, a, a different cultural group, a different community. Um, local or regional that just hasn't really been invited in that space. Um, and it's not because, oh, we didn't reach out to them to invite them to the concert. We didn't give them something that resonates with their life experience, um, you know, to sit there and, um, you know, be able to enjoy. So um, I just think that there's a good amount of work that still needs to be done um, and such huge opportunity we have. Uh, to connect to, again, the, the social, um, you know, issues of today um, and how we end up responding musically, I think that we're going to be judged 50 years from now. Because even when I look back 50 years from today, with all the stuff happening in this country and not seeing, you know, classical music respond to it, or um, we saw jazz respond to it. We saw rock music respond to it, for example, depending on the social issue. If it's the Vietnam War or if it's um, civil rights, um, but there, there were responses. And I'm just not convinced that we're responding enough today so that 50 years from now, we look back and we say that there was, there was enough happening. there by Samuel Coleridge Taylor as performed by the uh, Minnesota Orchestra. I was actually at that concert. Shout out to Kencho Watanabe who uh, con conducted that. And um, 
Dr. Louise Toppin. Shout out to Louise Toppin. She hosted the show. So she was given the, the, the in-betweens from, from all of the pieces. I wanted to uh, close out the, the conversation you know, with that piece for a couple reasons. So, of course, we're talking about a Black composer, but we're also talking about a Black composer, like many of the other musicians we've talked about in this opus, who uh, took it upon himself to do more than just the music. You know, uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, uh, you can read that he was at the first uh, uh, Pan-African conference or something like that. You know, he was really thinking about the Black man and the Black woman on a global level. He yeah. was from England, but he was over here in the United States helping us. You know? He was very interested in the in the Negro spirituals. I also bring him up um, and that recording specifically by the Minnesota Orchestra, because when we talk about the fact that orchestras by and large aren't doing enough, you know, as Stanford affirmed at the end of our conversation, I'm growing to believe, you know, again, my statesman era, as you say, I'm growing to think about giving some flowers where they're due. You know, on this podcast, you know, especially back in uh, the first season, I didn't really pull punches about my frustration with what they were doing over there. A lot has happened since 2018 mm-hmm. um, and work is being done. There's always going to be so much more to do. But I do have to say the Minnesota Orchestra, for me, is an example of an ensemble of a classical institution that's doing something, mm-hmm. you know, that that's putting some effort in, you know, inviting community members in when they can. I definitely feel heard by the Minnesota Orchestra, and I would definitely uh, affirm them as a, as a group that's putting in some effort. Am I giving them the gold star of approval? Like, you know, like, like I am, I have the ability to just completely absolve them of all wrongs, past past, present, future. And I'm not doing any of that. Still no invitation to the barbecue. <laughs> well, uh, they, they they have some staff members there that are invited to the barbecue, just not all of them. Okay. But, <laughs> but my, my point is, they're doing something. Yeah. And the more institutions do something, the less you have people like me with the ability to say, oh, orchestras aren't doing nothing. You know, let, let, let's put in some effort. You know, let's, let's, you know, maybe this is the opus of, uh, of some sort of positive reinforcement or something. There are institutions that are putting some effort in. I would put the Minnesota Orchestra in that category. Let's all do that because Mm -hmm. there are so many orchestras doing far less and there are even orchestras doing more, you know? Sure. All right, we're going to go ahead and uh, transition into the final movement. Basically, I just went through something this past week, and I want to get your thoughts, your your ideas on it. We're going to transition into the fourth movement with a piece of music that shines a light on a bit of the issue. This comes from the soundtrack to uh, The Black Klansman, music by Terrence Blanchard, a cut here called Gone with the Wind. It fuses a couple of old uh, Confederate melodies in a way that's so lush and so beautiful, even I had to pay attention, you know, despite the subject matter. So anyway, a little bit of this to get us into the fourth movement.
So when you hear that cut, you know, uh, well, first of all, have you seen Black Klansman? Sure. Have you seen the film? Okay, mm-hmm. so, well, you, you've seen the film, but when you hear that cut, what comes to mind? What's the mental image or the the emotional image that that music paints for you? It puts me in mind of the Civil War mm, yeah. or shortly thereafter. Yeah. Um, can For those who don't know and who might not completely understand, unpack a little bit about what Dixie means as a song. You, 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 what is problematic? So I can't, without running over to the Wikipedia page, <laughs> spout out the history of the tune Dixie. But what I can say is that it became the unofficial anthem of the of the Confederacy, and okay. it's a and it's a tune that many so called Confederates these days love to platform and to sing and and to play as a sign of their so called hate not heritage and and all that sort of thing. Hmm. On the other side of that, for me, I can't help but to think about the very notion of celebrating a confederacy and what that confederacy was actually wanting to remain separate to do. It wasn't It wasn't just so that they could be separate, it's so that they could have slaves. Let's right. just make that clear. So as much as a confederate flag is problematic for me, so is that music. All right. And not what we just listened to in particular. I um, have a, a good friend who, you know, not giving away too many details or, you know, putting anyone's business out there. There was an event honoring someone and the last tune played uh, by the honoree was Dixie. Now it comes in the packaging in the context of you know overcoming um, disease that you know prevented music playing and you know so it was a grand recovery and really a miracle in itself that this person could play uh, a musical instrument again. Mm. Um, they have family down south that said, "Oh well, if you're ever uh, uh, well enough to play music again, this is what we want to hear. This is our request." So he fulfilled their request and played Dixie. So this is the thing. When we talk about morals and ethics that apply to self that may not apply to the whole, especially folks who are not black and don't have their the front of their minds on that history at all times, it's hard to really uh, know how to engage those conversations respectfully and delicately without feeling like I'm wagging a finger or accusing someone of something Mm -hmm. or ruining the entire mood of a thing. I know many people who are probably shaking their head right now hearing me say that who don't care about ruining the mood of a space if something racist is is being said or or done. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's my baggage. That's my my karma to deal with. But even aside from that one situation, more and more in my life, the more that I spend really thinking about anti-blackness as a concept, as a structure, and as a system that's just foundational to virtually everything that is American, the more of it I'm just able to identify in everyday life when we're, when, you know, when I'm at work and, you know, I'm, uh, filling out an application, like a, a grant application or reviewing paperwork. And, you know, there are just things there that are definitely pro-BIPOC, pro-people of color, but within that, anti-Black. And I've, I've brought in variations of, of this conversation to, to Triloquy many times. You know, I think I've talked about how 
Uh, I think about the character in The Matrix, the Oracle, mm -hmm. being the equivalent to m many of today's DEI sort of initiatives. They're actually there to perpetuate anti-Blackness, even if that does mean some of the residual effect is that these other people of color get their boats raised uh, a little bit. Mm. It's just hard for me to to know how to engage, and it's something that I don't really have answers to right now. Just it feels good to be able to verbalize that there are instances in my life still where I don't know how to move forward, even when we're talking specifically about anti-Blackness. You know, it's one thing for me to see a Confederate flag somewhere and tell someone that's inappropriate. Am I supposed to run up to the stage and snatch it off the wall and, and cause a stir? You know, mm. am I supposed to do the same thing when I hear Dixie? It's, 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 it's difficult, you know, and not that, I'm not affirming any sort of gradations of racism as if one thing is more or less than the other, but I am at the point in my life where, and I feel like most people are, where the N-word is just unacceptable, full stop, whatever is happening, it's now ruined because we have to address this right now. I guess I'm working to get to that same level when it comes to some of the more nuanced ways that anti-Blackness and racism perceive, even when it comes to the tunes that people play on their instruments. In an instance like this, would you recommend, if, if someone did want to voice their displeasure yep. in, in this choice, in the moment with all the friends and family around, or later do you pull the person aside in the coat check and go, mm, what, do you what do you think? Yeah, and that's what I... That's what I tried to do. Like I definitely had the pull aside moment and I said something, but the spirits were still so high in celebration of the the honoree. It wasn't really heard. Mm. Uh, so I think it just takes a little little bit of separation from the actual thing. Maybe this time next week I'll have a, a chat with with that friend of mine and just not accuse them or say that you're wrong or you're racist, but just share my feelings. Just share how that moment made me feel. And if that's enough for them to take it to heart, great. If it's not, you know, it is what it is. So may, maybe really the answer is more I statements, more sharing, more of how I feel um, as opposed to being accusatory and trying to fix someone else. If the empathy can be there on both sides, maybe that means some sort of change or, and dialogue can happen. I can certainly understand a hesitation to say something in an instance like this, but we've talked so many times about if you see something, say something. Yeah. Because there's probably people sitting around you that feel the same way. Mm -hmm. They might speak up in the moment, but also you might make yourself a pariah. You might, you know, end up an outcast by saying that in front of a group that wouldn't be a you know, they might respond with, be respectful of the of the the person we're trying to honor here. Right. Well I guess let me ask you again, if you're somewhere and the N-word happens from the stage, that's obviously something that's unacceptable. You're not gonna just sit there and and listen to that. Okay. We're on that spectrum. Again, this conversation feels weird. I, I don't want to, again, don't want to say a, a spectrum of racism. Some is less or more than other. But if you're somewhere and you hear Dixie, what would be your reaction? Is Would, would that be something that would uh, uh, compel you to pull someone to the side or say something? Or would you even know 
that that is a problem. That's something that some people find offensive. I knew that it was offensive to some people, but I didn't know why. Yeah. And like you, I wouldn't be able to recount it without having the Wikipedia page up in front of me. So my tactic would definitely be to pull aside at the, you know later on. Because that's the other thing I was thinking about. Maybe these people just don't know or have never met enough black people to know that that's weird to be platforming Dixie as this tune for us to be listening to and 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 putting in a celebratory way yeah i definitely understand the conundrum you know it, it must be you know like uh, trying to hold in that knowledge in the moment must have been very difficult um you could have ruined the the event oh i could have yeah yeah i've, I've ruined an event or two <laughs> but, but but i chose to keep it chill here uh. um so maybe, so maybe that's on me. Maybe, maybe I should have ruined the moment and ruined relationships. This is all the only thing that many people in the space know about me, that I'm just someone who is going to disrespect the space, X, Y, and Z. Shake the but table. But then, yeah, shake the table. I, I, I don't know. I, I think, again, I don't have the answers. I just wanted to share it because I'm sure that there are many other people of all hues and races and backgrounds that hear something that's weird, that's racist, that's problematic, and uh, don't quite know how to deal with it or engage it sure. in the moment. Even for folks like me, the so-called classical agitator, I feel like a lot of people view me as the person who's going to unapologetically throw the brick, and, and that's just that. Even for me, there are situations and circumstances where I don't always know, and I'm just trying to center and lead with compassion and human empathy, because at the end of the day, I don't want to ruin relationships. I want things to be dismantled. And I think things can be dismantled without ruining relationships. Again, if I you know, just say how I feel to this person and it's not received positively, well, then now I just know. But maybe there's a way for it to be received mm. positively. I feel like overall, this has been a softer episode of Triloquy. Oh, you so know? you had to give some spice in the end? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to give much more spice next week then. I'll, I'll bring two bottles of hot sauce. We'll, well, we'll, we'll give y'all some stuff then. But every now and again, it's good to sit back and to really think about, again, how we can lead with compassion and find common ground instead of building schisms that are even more separated. That's what I got for this week. Thank y'all for listening. Again, maybe more spice next week. We'll see. But until then, y'all be good. <laughs> <laughs>